0: Well, Proverbs chapter 28, finally, finally, it seemed like every Wednesday night something would happen, Uh, you know, I wasn't feeling good or whatever, and I've uh, missed several Wednesday nights, but finally we're getting back to chapter 28 of the book of Proverbs, and We begin tonight in verse number 9. We've covered the first eight verses for those of you that are here that maybe you're not familiar with what we're doing on Wednesday evening. We're doing a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. We're just going through it, just one word, one verse uh, at a time. And occasionally, uh, we'll see an example of what I'm talking about a bit later on in this chapter. Uh, For example, when we get down to verse number 12, We'll camp out there a while and have an outline message, but for the most part, we'll just move from verse to verse because it's like somebody said about, you know, the book of Proverbs, it's kind of like the phone book, you know, it changes subjects every line and uh, it's, you know, it's not really that bad, but that's the impression some people get. But that's what God intended. And even on the parts that are what we think of as being reputitious, well, you know, we just read that last time. Well, uh, there's a good reason. God knows we have some problem areas, and we need to hear it more than once. Verse number 9, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Now, if you remember back in verse number 7, we see that uh, he he tells us that the keeping of, of God's law is an evidence of wisdom, you know. And we talked about that. Whenever God says don't do something, what God's really saying is I don't want you to hurt yourself. Because God's law is not only right, it's always the best. And we see that it's an evidence of wisdom whenever we keep God's law. But now in this verse, we see an example of how foolish... It is to not do so. And before we just really get into all of the details here, just think for a moment about the importance of prayer. And I often make the statement that everything we do, the preaching, the singing, everything we do, our mission work, our wanna clubs, our Sunday school classes, everything we do depends to some degree on prayer. If we leave prayer out of the equation, it's going to fail every time. It just, that's the way God works. So prayer is absolutely essential. We're powerless without prayer. So just imagine for a moment how it might be if God refused to listen to our prayers or to intervene in our life whenever we have a need what if God said, look, I, I've given you life and, and I'm, I'm going to take you to heaven, but now it's all up to you to make it the best you can. Wow. I don't know. You know, I, I had a lot of problems before I was saved, but they were of a different sort. And, and I've got to tell you, Uh, I've had some more serious problems after I got saved than I did before I was saved. And there's never been a moment that I didn't need God's help. But just imagine how horrible it would be if God said, I'm going to to cheer for you, you know, and I'm going to bring you to heaven when you die. I've forgiven you of all of your sins, but you're going to have to tough it out. You're going to have to make it on your own. Thank God for answered prayer, you see. and uh, But that's what it would mean to be cut off from God. So, And the problem's never with God, by the way. The problem's always with us because we're the ones that refuse to listen. And, and, and notice what, what he's saying here. Whenever we turn away from hearing the law... That is God's righteous standard. When we refuse to listen to God, He says His prayer shall be abomination. See, that shows how foolish sin is. When we ignore God, we set ourselves up to be ignored by God. Let that sink in. Just think about that. For God to just ignore us, I'm busy running the universe today. You know, I've got some comets I've got to take care of over here, and you know, I, No, God never ignores us, but it's as though He does whenever we cut ourselves off for, from Him. You see, notice that's just part of the story because it gets worse. He says that when we refuse to listen to the law, even our prayer becomes abomination that's loathsome. That means detestable. It's speaking about something that is repulsive, repulsive to God. To think about our prayers, here we are on our knees with a great need in our life, pouring out our, our heart to God in prayer. Lord, I... You you know, if you don't answer this prayer, my child might die, my wife might leave me, the church might split, whatever the problem is, you see. And, um, And to think about that effort being something that is repulsive to God. Abomination. Go through the Bible and look up all of the the context of all of the places where you find the word abomination, the sin that we think of is associated with it, you know, it says this is an abomination to God and that's an abomination to God. And, and you wonder how in the world can can the Lord, you know, put this in that same category. But remember what the issue is. The issue is us refusing to listen to the law of God. And if we're unwilling to listen to God, why should God listen to us? I want to tell you right now, if we just lived any old way we please, committed every sin that we're tempted to commit, I'm talking about as Christians even, so we just, you know, cut loose and do whatever we want to do, totally ignoring God's righteous standard for our life, We wouldn't, we wouldn't be worth anything if God just let us go on like that. You see, if you're a child of God, remember, you're not only just a child of God, you are an heir of God and a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is, God has big plans for you. Big plans for you. That's why whenever he spoke about Christ and His resurrection, he talks about the fact that He's to be the firstborn of many sons, you know, that God has a big family and God has plans. And the plan is for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And whenever we refuse to listen to God, to obey God, when we dishonor God to the point that we refuse to listen to His law, God wouldn't be doing us a favor by giving us what we want. I wrote an article the other day. I haven't sent it out yet. I don't know whether I will or not. Sort of a strange article. The title of it is Overhelping Others. Do you realize that we can be guilty of that, overhelping others? We really can. You know, you can spoil kids that way. But sometimes we are guilty of overhelping other people. God would be overhelping us if here we are intent on doing what we want to do with no concern for for what He has commanded. And if God said, "Well, I'll just I'll just grant your request anyway," God loves us too much to let us get by with that lifestyle. And that's why it says here that whenever we ignore His law. Our prayer becomes abomination to God. Look, it happened to Israel. You read, uh, uh you know, go over the book of Malachi there in, in chapter number one, especially. You don't need to turn there, but if, unless you want to, but. Here they are. They have look. They haven't denied God. They haven't stopped worshiping God. At least in their own mind, they're conducting services. They're going through all of the rituals. They're offering up all of the sacrifices, doing all of those things. And here they are. Just imagine the Levitical choir lifting high their voice, and God says, in essence, "Get that noise out of here. I don't want to hear just noise to me." Wow. I Whenever we have an attitude of rebellion against God, even when we're doing what is not sinful in and of itself, that's why the Bible says the plowing of the wicked is sin. And and so is the prayer of somebody living in rebellion against God. So if we want our prayer life to be effective, then we have to yield ourselves to the control of the God that we call upon. Verse 10. Whoso causeth the righteous to go astray in an evil way, he shall fall himself into his own pit. But the upright shall have good things in possession. Now, it shouldn't be so, but we all know that it's true that there are some folks that would lead us astray. In fact, sometimes... (laughs) There seem to be some people that take a special delight in bringing about the fall of others. I can almost guarantee you, if you've run with the kind of crowd I run with before I got saved, the moment you make a profession of faith and let everybody know, fellas, I won't be going back to the bar with you after work tonight. You know, I'm not going to be doing those things anymore. I can guarantee you somebody will make it their personal mission to try to put every temptation imaginable before you. Because, they, they, you know, they don't care anything about your spiritual state and they're going to put you to the test, you see. And so that's why we have to be so careful about the company that we keep. The Bible, you know, tells us about that, that we are corrupted by bad company. And uh, a lot of times the wicked intentions of bad people are not always obvious because sometimes they do it under the guise of friendship. I've known instances over the years where associate assistant pastors have literally undermined the pastor in order to drive him out And to gain control of the church. And when I say I've no of instances, I'm talking about many, not just a few. I'm talking about other cases where maybe it was a deacon in the church or some member in the church, and they made it their mission. They wanted rid of the pastor. They thought, you know, like felt like it was his time to go. So they made it their mission to, you know, to start politicking among the people and try to get enough people together that they could finally get him out. And and let me tell you, there are people that will come to you under the guise of friendship, and sometimes, sometimes the tempter can be a relative or a church member. Don't ever assume that everybody has your best interest at heart. Especially if you're a person that is loving and kind and giving and so on and so forth there are going to be some people that's going to use you every chance they get. There are going to be some people that, you know, I I mean, just try to use you to their advantage and not really care anything about you and will turn against you when they don't get what they want, you see. It's almost like some people, you know, it makes them happy to see somebody hurting and uh, notice what he says those that are guilty of this notice he says they shall fall he shall fall himself into his into his own pit in other words he digs a pit for you to you know to to bring about your fall well he's going to end up falling in that pit and we saw that back in chapter number 26 and There's several references to it. And the point is that judgment is sure to fall on those that plot evil against others. And you mark it down, you make a serious mistake whenever you you set out to hurt somebody else, especially whenever it's God's children. I mean, you're playing with fire when you do that. And a lot of times we put all the emphasis upon, you know, treating the preacher right. And the Bible, you know, talks about do my prophets no harm and so forth. I understand that, but I don't, I think God loves all of His children, don't you? And it'd be a horrible thing for a preacher, you know, to to hurt His people, to inflict need you know needless pain on them. So when you when you plot to hurt somebody else, just you better get ready uh, to get hurt. That's the point he's making. You dig a pit for somebody to fall in, you're going to fall into it. But notice there's a contrast here in this proverb. Notice the upright. This is the good guy. The upright shall have good things in possession. He's simply saying they'll be blessed in their deeds, you see. The point is that right living is going to result in In blessings that will, you know, benefit from being a blessing, uh, to others. Now, whenever he says that, he's not just talking about possessions and, you know, in the monetary sense and material things. Uh, The blessings can come in a lot of different forms. One of those, one of those great blessings is having a a clear conscience that we've done what we should. Boy, for a Christian, you know, one of the things, one of the things that can make you more miserable than anything else is to know that, that God wanted you to do something. I mean, there wasn't any doubt about it. I mean, you could read it right there in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit had been convicting you in regards to that matter. You know, you should have done it and you didn't do it. You made some excuse. You copped out. You refused to do it. And then that night you put your head on the pillow at night. You know, and pray yourself to sleep or try with that guilty conscience. It eats you up, I'm telling you. And there's nothing in the world like having that peace in your heart that, Lord, I did my best to do your will today. And that's the whole point he's trying to make there. Don't hurt yourself by hurting others, but rather bring a blessing into your life as a result of being a blessing to someone. Now, verse 11. The rich man is wise in his own conceit, but the poor that have understanding searcheth him out. I don't know whether you know it or not, but there's a lot of people that judge other people by, uh, you know, and especially their wisdom, which what he's talking about here, judge their wisdom by their wealth. Let me tell you, there's a lot of rich people that are lacking in wisdom and there's a lot of poor people that are very wise. But the text here, notice, is speaking about rich people who are wise, but it's in their own conceit. In other words, they're not truly wise, but they think they are and they want everybody else to think they are also uh thinking about that reminds me of the warning that Paul gave over in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 speaking about those that were rich and he says if they be not high minded you see that fits right in with what we're talking about the conceit of those rich people that think they're wise and um you know here they are. now understand this A lot of times we don't realize what great temptation people are under. Sometimes we read the heartbreaking account of some preacher that has fallen. Boy, we could just start naming them. I'm talking about famous preachers that have fallen. And we have no idea of the great temptation because fortune and fame brings with it certain temptations that the rest of us don't know anything about. You know, somebody asked me today about, about Trump and what Trump did some years ago. I, I, I don't. Know, why they didn't ask me about Clinton, and all that? About what Trump? What Trump did? I don't know. You know exactly. I don't have any proof. I don't know what he did years ago. I I know what he's doing now. And uh, you know, why why is it there's so many times? You know, we want to look back and bash somebody for what they did some time ago. You know, when when you try to hold people to that kind of accountability, what you do usually is destroy any chance of their restoration. Because you force them to live with their past the rest of their life. And even though somebody's done wrong, when they get it right, uh, you know, we, we ought to forget it. And So we're talking about here rich people and their conceit. But remember... We're talking about rich people. That enables them to have things and to do things that the poor people can't do. So what what happens there? That fills them with pride. And you might be surprised how many of us would be spoiled if suddenly we inherited $10 million, you know, and so we can travel the world and do anything we want to do, uh, you know, get an early retirement and just, boy, and then we start hobnobbing with we, uh, hobnobbing with the celebrities in Hollywood and the sports figures and all of that. and And suddenly we're living the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. Well, you know, I just wonder. Uh, I, I just wonder how church attendance would be. Uh, I I just wonder how spiritual we would be if we had all of that dumped in our lap. So the reason I'm doing this is trying to get you to understand how this can happen to people that are wealthy, and it creates this this conceit that causes them to think, you know, they're better or they're smarter than the poor person. Now notice the second half of it. But the poor that hath understanding searcheth him out. Now, I think I've made the point all poor people are not wise and all rich people are not unwise. But this verse here is reminding us that there are wise poor people. You know, in fact, many of the wisest people that ever lived have been poor. And probably, if you're my age, you can think of somebody. might have been a relative. It might have been some old farmer or something that my, never had much money at all. But boy, did they ever have wisdom. All of the preachers that I know and have known over the years. And, uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, pastoring big churches, drawing good salaries and and, you know, they've made a name for themselves. Wisest preacher I've ever known was an old preacher over in the land of the lakes, over in the area of Kentucky there. Pastor a little old country church out there. Never met a man that I believed was wiser than him. He, 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 did. he never got a big salary like a lot of pastors do. He never got the fame a lot of preachers do. But I'll tell you, he had wisdom. You don't look. You don't have to be rich to have wisdom. And so he's talking about a poor man that that has that has wisdom. He has understanding. And notice how important this is. That understanding. It says enables him. He searcheth him out. That is the rich person that is conceited. In in other words, what he's saying is that he is able to see the conceited rich man for what he really is he's not deceived by the showy front he, you know he well he he knows he's not all that he pretends to be now why is that important could be important for several reasons but i think the main reason is that keeps him from being envious when god gives him the spiritual insight to see that here is a fellow that seems to have it all and, and, and yet is miles away from the will of God in his life. Somebody that doesn't have any wisdom, even though they got a lot of wealth, and the poor man can say, I'm better off than he is. I, I, I like that old Southern gospel song says, I'm a poor rich man. I know that I'm poor, but I got a lot more than many rich people that I know, and boy, that can be true. Verse number 12, I think we'll probably wrap it up maybe. Well, we'll see. Verse 12, better not make any promises. When righteous men do rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, a man is hidden. Now, if we put this, you know, in terms of modern English, and we've got to realize that and I'm certainly not trying to correct the King James Version of the Bible. I would never, ever do that. But we got to realize it was English from 1611. And so we read some of these things. It's a little bit difficult, at least for me, to put the pieces together here. And so we need to consider the, the meaning of each word and phrase. But notice this phrase, do rejoice. They do rejoice. When the righteous men do rejoice. And that comes from a Hebrew word that means to triumph. It means uh, conquerors. Somebody that has the upper hand. And what he's talking about here is a celebration that takes place after a victory. A triumphal entry, for example. We might call it a parade today. The men and the women and the kids all out there jumping in the street for joy and, and that's the idea here. And the point is that when the righteous are in control, there's great glory. Why? Because the people feel at liberty to openly express themselves publicly worshiping God. There's a great example of that you might want to look at it later whenever you get home over in the book of Esther in chapter 8. There in verse 15, 16, and 17, the, toward the end of it, and, and a- after the evil plot against the Jews had been overthrown, and uh, y- you know, and God had turned everything upside down finally, and there was rejoicing, the Jews were out in the street and singing and shouting for joy, and for a good reason, because they were about to be killed, murdered. And God delivered them, and there was great joy. When the righteous men do rejoice, there's great glory. That ought to be the hope that we have for our nation. However, notice, when the wicked rise, a man is hidden. When he says the wicked rise, that's talking about him rising to power whenever he gains control. And when that happens, instead of rejoicing in the street, notice he says, a man is hidden. In other words, for fear of oppression and persecution, they go into hiding this awful away, because you know they know they 're under the iron heel of, of, of some wicked ruler, you see, and well, uh, I telling you, here in America we don 't realize sometimes how fortunate we are, and we don 't realize in what great danger we are, nor how quickly everything can suddenly turn around nearly overnight and we need to keep this in mind whenever you know we talk about putting the right people in office and, and it's so crucial that that we do and it's our responsibility to certainly to do that because with the wrong people in office uh, all of a sudden we're rather than rejoicing out in the street and singing the praises of the Lord we're going to be sulking away in hiding sometimes you know whether it's the matter of gun control or whatever it is it's just amazing to me you've got these these poor young people that are being used as puppets, puppets by you know by the liberals and so forth and here they are they have no Earthly idea of what they're doing out there protesting in the streets using their First Amendment rights to destroy the Second Amendment rights, which assures them of their First Amendment rights. I mean, how crazy is that? And and that that's exactly what they're doing. And that's the kind of stuff that happens when the wrong people gains control. And uh, and it's not just a matter of gun control. They want control. Over all of us, because let me tell you, as some of them have said, and I'll, I'll try to make this as unpolitical as I can without naming names, but some of them have said in, in no uncertain terms that the average person in America doesn't have enough sense to know how to live and needs us, the elite class, you know, of course didn't use that phrase, but that's what he was thinking, the elite class needs us, those of us that are wiser, you know, to guide them along, because they don't know how to live, they're just a bunch of dummies. Uh huh. Yeah, I don't agree with. Yeah, but it, isn't it sad to think that that sometimes people like that get put into office and and we end up paying the price. And when I say we, I'm talking about our, even our kids and our grandkids and our nation as a whole. Well, verse thirteen, and I am going to end it with this because. Uh, Uh, There's several things I want to say about verse 13. He that covereth his sins. Well, well, well. Boy, we could camp out there for a while because, I don't know, maybe we've all at some point in some time been guilty of doing that. He that covereth his sins, but notice, shall not prosper but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Now, there are two things that he calls our attention to here. And that is the concealment of sin and the confession of sin. And he starts out talking about the concealment of sin. We try to cover our sin. We try to hide it. And, and, and you know, that's a common practice. I, I, as I said, I think most people, at some point in time in their life, they try to do that. You know, that's why men love darkness rather than light. For one thing, you know, they don't want their to parade their sin out in front of everybody else, and so it's a very common thing for people to try to conceal their sin. Now, they can do it in a number of ways. They might try to explain it away, like Adam. Well, that w- woman thou gavest me. So he's don't blame God. Explain it away. It might be like Cain just trying to deny their sin outright. Well, you know, what are you talking about? I haven't done anything wrong. Then there are those like Achan. They try to hide it. You know, dig a hole, put it in the ground. Nobody will find out. Then there's some, you know, they try to, they try to compensate the bad with doing good. You know, I know, I know what I'm doing. Look, I, I had a preacher in, in this general area tell me he was unfaithful to his wife, and the news was out. Everybody else knew about it, and what have you. And and he was a preacher that I'd known since he was a kid, and he stood there and told me that day, I know what I'm doing is wrong, and I know that, I know that. That it's not right, but uh, he said uh, it, it bothers me. But he said I, I don't mind telling you, I'm just I'm just kind of angry at God about it. I said, what have you got to be angry at God about? He said, I've asked God to take away my love for that other woman, and he he won't do it. Wow, uh, it, it's so amazing. And so somebody have some sin like that and will try to compensate. Oh, what I did was horrible and terrible and what have you, but I mention all that to say, guess what? He's got a different wife, but he's still pastoring. Really? Look, there's no need, whether you excuse it, try to compensate for it, hide it, or whatever don't try to cover your sin. Because why? Notice, it's destructive. He says it shall not prosper. And you can look at that in almost any way you want to physically. Boy, I think about what David went through. And I don't think any of us can even begin to understand in Psalms 32. He explains part of it where he talked about, you know, the physical effect that sin had on his body. And... uh, Don't, now look, I realize all suffering is not the result of some sin in your life. I understand that. It's certainly not. But it can be. It can be. It can be God's way of chastising us as a result of sin. One thing's for sure, the Bible's not wrong when it says we reap what we sow. And then it affects us emotionally. David talks about the tears that he shed. But most of all, it affects us spiritually. It robs us of God's blessings. It robs us of our ability to serve God effectively because we lose the power that we normally would have had. And, and, and it's all in vain. I say it's in vain because it's going to get discovered. Like the little bird, you know, that told me so. Well... God has a way, uh, you know, be sure your sin will find you out. No need in trying to conceal it because uh, we need to deal with it. And that's what He tells us to do. Notice the confession of sin. And uh, several things we could say about that. And let me tell you, the first thing I want to say about it is we're going to have to be in earnest whenever we confess our sins. Because a lot of times, the so-called confession is not really any more than just uh, an admission because somebody got caught. And we all know that's happened, right? Somebody get caught. Everybody knows about it. might have been in the paper. So what do they do? Well, I guess I'm going, I need to go before the church because they're going to take action against me and I don't want that to happen. So they'll go before the church and they'll admit, I did this or I did that. But their, their great interest is not in making things right with God. It's in trying to save face some way or another. And we've got to be in dead earnest whenever we do that. But whoso confesseth, that, that word... If, First John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word confess means to come into agreement with. It means that we come into agreement with God regarding our sin. That's why the next word is added. Whoso, whoso confesseth and notice and forsaketh, and forsaketh his sin. Just acknowledging it and saying, yep, it happened. I got caught with my hand in the till. You know, I. yep, it's my fault. I shouldn't have done that. It, it was wrong. And then turn around and do it again. I could tell you instances where there have been people that have committed the same horrible sin three and four times with different people and again and again come before the church well you know I, I, I hate to admit it folks but i've you know i've i've been unfaithful a year goes by and here they come again you know we better mean business whenever we come before god and we say to god lord i agree with you about my sin i agree with you about my sin and we, you know, we give evidence of our sincerity when we actually forsake that sin. Amen. And that, that's when, notice, we find mercy. I'm so glad that we have a salvation where the Bible says nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Wow, that that statement is so awesome because even though we are the children of God, there are going to be times that we fail our Heavenly Father because none of us are perfect. So there are going to be times that we fail our Heavenly Father. But the good news is God doesn't cast us aside because we failed Him. Amen? I mean, we're still His children. And nothing separates us from the love of God. That's where His mercy comes in, you see. God is merciful. And remember what Jeremiah said? It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Let me tell you, since I've been saved, since I've been preaching over 50 years now, I've committed, I've committed enough sins that God could have, God could have killed me a thousand times since the day I got saved. And it's only by cause of His mercy that He didn't. Amen. I mean, it's not that I deserved, you know, to be pardoned from sin and get a free pass. Uh, because whenever you really stop and think about it, every infraction, every sin, every act of rebellion against God is worthy of the death penalty. But God is Merciful. Thank God for His mercy and His grace. Well, I so hope tonight that there's been something something said, something in these Proverbs that have maybe been a help to you in some way. I know we've gone from one subject to another, but uh, uh, that's the way God planned it. And if you're here tonight and if if I can do anything to be of any help, why, let me know or Brother Kenneth if we can help or... It's not just us. Go to any of our Sunday school teachers, any of our workers, deacons, or whatever, and they'll be glad to help. So, let's all stand. We're going to sing a little chorus and then be dismissed in prayer.